Well, hello and welcome to episode number 367 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos and in this week's show, London Heathrow may be diverting flights to save on the queues, a Concorde has its nose moved and staying on the subject of noses, a passenger receives a fine for blowing their nose on a blanket. And in the military this week, Germany are set to replace their ageing P3s with P8s. A pilot wins an award for a very challenging landing. And Armando brings us his take on Roundup uh, about the forthcoming EAA air venture over in the US. So joining me this week, as always, over in the PTUK studios, keeping all the tech running very smoothly, is, of course, (laughs) Matt Smith. I I, I always enjoy your optimism there. It's it's greatly appreciated, as we said. (laughs) Yes, we're on air. That's we'll, we'll take we'll take that as a win this week. <laughs> I know. Uh, it's nice, nice to see you in the studio, Matt. How are things in there? Warm? Uh, well, are- yes, absolutely. Well, mind you, it's a bit chilly today, isn't it? Uh, let's be honest. <laughs> so uh, it's uh, it's a nice place to be this evening. Uh, you know, it's uh, when the sun comes out, it'll be probably be slightly warmer than before, oh, especially yes. with our recent upgrades in here. There's a lot more. Uh, there's a lot <laughs> more things to kick out heat in here than there was before. So uh, yeah, I'll be asking for an air conditioning unit next. <laughs> I'll, I'll get you a desk. For Man, Thank you very fine. much. You're very kind. I know. Yeah. Very kind. You know how to spoil me, don't you? Oh, I know. I've got one in the cupboard here waiting <laughs> oh, to go thanks, around thanks. yours, actually. So. Oh, good. Right. <laughs> and joining us from his glorious studios in sunny Buckinghamshire, well, I think it's sunny today, is, of course, Neville Bounds. It is a very sunny day. Good evening and hello to everybody. And uh, we are off to Portugal, ladies and gentlemen, I'm very pleased to say. Thank goodness. So um, uh, all the travel mucking about that's gone on today, is it on, is it off? But finally, there's some travel allowed to certain parts of Europe from Monday. So that's great news. And uh, that suits me very nicely because uh, Mrs Nev and I are off to, off to Portugal the first week of July. So uh, oh, wow. all being well, um, we shall be in the Algarve, as long as nothing changes or they start mucking about again. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I did. I did see your social media uh, post on uh, Facebook earlier today, Nev, with your yes. joy of uh, the gates opening up. You could tell my keenness, couldn't you? Yes, um, indeed. So, uh, yeah. Any, yeah, so, any, any news from a business perspective, though? Though, Nev, I mean, uh, I, not really. We're, we're not really allowed to fly. I don't think on company business until June. But of course, right. that's all. I mean, where I would be going would be Sweden, but unfortunately, their infection rates are rather high at the moment. So, right. um, I don't know quite where that we're going to end up there. So that's going to be. I would think it's going to be September before we can travel properly. But uh, we'll just see what what the company says and. Uh, we'll see how we do. Uh, a changeable picture, I think, is, is, yes, is the like best answer to Bert that. Ford Hopefully, say, um, on, on the weather forecast. I mean, let's, yeah. let's be honest, Matt. Remember we, back that far. we need <laughs> things to get back to normal so Nev can get some passenger experience segments back in. Yes. Yeah, I'm show, seriously we? short of content now. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we, we've. I need to get back on the plane somehow. Yeah, the, the highlights packages are now exhausted. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Armando is uh, missing again this week, but he has a very, very valid experience excuse in, indeed this evening because as we are doing the show uh, Armando is in a sim having having lots of fun in a sim I will say because he's been sending me messages on uh, whatsapp just rubbing it in that he's in a lovely awesome sim <laughs> flying around everywhere so we miss you Armando but hopefully he'll be back uh, on the show next you week but it. he has sent in the entire 
military segment for this week. I know, I'm so excited Interview. about that because some, somebody know. who knows what they're talking about will be doing the military this week. Fantastic, <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. But uh, we have got a guest joining us on the show this week. We're going to uh, speak to in just a moment, but we have got some housework to uh, to do before we uh, start uh, our talk, talk with our guests. So uh, it's... Uh, Quick apology, actually, from me to Nick Codling, one of our listeners, who I missed last week on the Patreon list. Totally my fault. I don't know. It was a mad rush last week to get the Patreon list to to the guys, and uh, I missed Nick off. So apologies to Nick. I did speak to Nick uh, a few days ago, and uh, (laughs) and but he's very kindly actually uh, sent us some audio feedback into the show, and uh, Matt's got that ready to play. And it's all about a certain aircraft that he saw flying over his home uh, this week. So if you've got that, Matt. Hello, everyone. This is Nick Codling down in Devon, in the southwest of the UK. I have a little bit of feedback about something I thought was interesting that happened today and I thought I'd share it with you all. I've long had a bit of a Flight Radar 24 addiction and I really struggle to not pull my phone out every time I hear an aircraft fly over. Uh, In fact, while I was out walking on Dartmoor today, I found myself in an area with no mobile service so I was unable to find out what the unusually noisy aircraft was that flew overhead although I'll assume it to be an elderly cargo plane, likely on the way to South America, as that tends to be the case with a lot of the larger stuff that comes down this way. Anyway, once I was back home, I was coincidentally reading a really great book about Air Canada Flight 143, the Gimli Glider. That's been hugely interesting, but literally that is another story. Anyway, while I was reading... I heard a propeller aircraft fly over the house and upon looking at Flight Radar 24 I was rather surprised to see it was an ATR-72 owned by none other than Virgin Australia. It had flown up from the south of France and went on to land at Exeter Airport which is only a couple of minutes flying time from where I live. Well, this guy was either really lost Or perhaps I speculate that as Virgin were part of the original group of investors to buy Flybe, they were positioning this aircraft for the relaunch of Flybe. I'd love to find out if that's true, so if anyone has any insider information, I'd love to hear more. Perhaps more fascinating to me is the thought that repositioning this aircraft from Australia to the UK must have been quite an adventure. Uh, for a comparatively small aircraft like the ATR. I'd love to find out what the route was and how long it took. I'm also curious to know if this is the only one or whether there will be more uh, that have made the journey, as I understand that the the Flybe-8s got sold off uh, and in one instance a group of them went to Canada to be used as firefighting aircraft. Um, So I guess has been announced that they've got some slots at Heathrow and I guess if they haven't got any aircraft then they might need to get some in. Anyway I posted a screenshot from Flight Radar 24 on my Instagram story so perhaps if Matt can pop that up for those of you watching on the YouTubes. Well that's enough rambling from me thanks again guys for all your hard work you produce a really great show it's hugely enjoyable, and your guests have been absolutely knockout lately. 
All the best. This is Nick Codling wishing you all tailwinds and all the good stuff that they say over on The Other Show. <laughs> the Other Show. How rude. <laughs> there aren't any other shows, are there? <laughs> there's, there's, there's no other aviation no, podcast, no, honestly. Absolutely. Uh, APG or something. No, no, absolutely. Very good. Oh, Very big, good. Thanks, uh, big thanks to Nick Codling for sending that in. And yes, mm. I, it uh, does beg the question, what, what's going on with those aircraft? I'd imagine that there is come some, sort of, uh, some kind of uh, movement going on of those to use for uh, for other purposes perhaps for flybees yeah. so yeah yeah um and, and actually <laughs> oh, nick i've nick been mentioned... I've, I've been caught out sorry uh apg's in the chat room by the way. oh oh dear <laughs> oops oops <laughs> sorry but actually nick nick was nick was talking about the gimli glider and i've got my piece of the gimli glider here oh wow you probably can't really probably can't actually see that on yeah. the camera but it's probably seven six seven seven six seven yeah i've got my <laughs> I've got my piece of uh, genuine skim from the Gimli Glider 767 here, which I cherish. Indeed. It's on my own in my office here. But yeah, thanks for sending that in, Nick. Very much appreciated. Mm. And uh, nice to hear from you. Don't forget, if you want to send feedback into the show, uh, we'll have all the relevant links at the end of this show to send that into. But Matt, yes. you have got a little bit of very special information for our listeners. Indeed, yes. Now, uh, regular listeners to the show, or should we say perhaps long-suffering listeners to the show, may remember uh, a long time ago we used to have a regular guest on the show, a young lad by the name of Owen. And uh, Owen, I'm delighted to say, is uh, it's a privilege to call my best friend now after many years, and we miss him uh, being involved in the show greatly because he was always uh, very, very good value. But anyway, Owen, who many of you will remember, today he got married to the lovely Agnes which is very exciting so uh, we all want to say uh, congratulations to Owen and Agnes on their very very special day we are all absolutely devastated that we couldn't be there to uh, to celebrate with you um, but because uh, of a, some stupid stupid pandemic that's going on but uh, there we go so yes uh, from all of us uh, I think uh, uh, congratulations on your very very special day and I'm sure uh, well I, I dare say they won't see the this for a long time because hopefully they're eating lots of very nice food and drinking lots of beer so <laughs> congratulations to owen and agnes yeah lots of love in the chat room for for the guys matt lots of congratulations from all our listeners so uh, yeah all the best uh, owen hope you have a fantastic evening of uh, fun this evening so yeah take care and uh, hopefully um we might get some feedback from him you know at some point to say how he <laughs> how he how he got on right uh, yes i think you're a bit hopeful there aren't you <laughs> i know i know anyway we're going to say a big uh, hello and welcome to everyone who's joined us on the YouTube stream this evening. All the usual family members in there, including some who were in there an hour before we started. So that is dedication for you. Including uh, producer John, I should say, as well. Including... there from the start. Oh, OK. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we'll say hello to Golden Dragon. Haven't seen you in the chat room, so welcome to you, Golden Dragon. Lee Davies is in there. Richard Adams. Hello to you, Richard Adams. Uh, we have got Captain Cruz. Uh, we've got Auntie Liz over in Canada. Hello to you, Auntie Liz. Uh, we've got Stephen Ivory over in the US. Hello to you, Stephen. Uh, Alan White's in there. Tony S. Mazous Karim. Hello to you as well. Masha is there. Uh, Tony S. David Corston. Hello, David, over in Spain. Nice to see you in the chat room. Our main man, Uncle Micah, over in the US as well. He's tuned in tonight. Nice to see you, Micah. Laura Davis is also there. Hello to you, Laura, over in the US as well. And who have we got? Myla. Hello to Myla. Hope you're well, Myla. Hope you're having fun this evening. 
and just make sure I don't miss anyone. APG crew, obviously, the APG crew is yeah, in there. Yeah, the you're never quite sure which one, are you? And also, this week, <laughs> nice to see Dave Abbey in as well. And uh, oh, well. Dave Dave actually commented uh, earlier that uh, it's nice that uh, we, we run to a quite a, a consistent schedule on this show. <laughs> that time. That's because Nev wouldn't have it any other way, would you, Nev? Let's be honest. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very strict. <laughs> so, uh, moving on then to our guest on the show tonight. I know lots of people have been very much looking forward to tonight's guest. And tonight's guest on the show is a senior inspector of air accidents at the Air Accident Investigation Branch here in the UK. He is an experienced chartered aircraft engineer, manager and air safety practitioner with expertise in rotary and fixed wing land and maritime aviation. He's also had a very busy career indeed within the Royal Navy, which included being the deputy air engineer officer for 899 squadron overseeing the famous sea harrier and harrier jump jet so it gives me great pleasure to welcome onto the show bob vickery good evening everybody lovely to be here welcome bob welcome on to uh welcome on to the organized chaos that is on the show (laughs) (laughs) so bob um thanks for taking time out of your friday to join us and um you're uh you're obviously well Obviously, you work within the AAIB, which we'll be talking about later on. But I suppose we need to start off, Bob, asking really kind of where where aviation started for you. Well, um, I've always been interested uh, in engineering and anything that moved, whether it be planes, ships, trains, cars, whatever. And um, I come, my, my background, my family, a lot of my family members were in the Navy. That or teachers was the choice, really. And um, so I joined the Navy um, back in 82 um, and uh, was selected for air engineering. I originally wanted to be a marine engineer, but um, I was given the choice. And so I ended up being an air engineer. And uh, I joined at the time when they had apprenticeships. I did an apprenticeship. um, And uh, my sort of engineering career developed from there, really. And I started with Sea Harriers and I. Uh, did a spell with uh, Canberras, actually, at the RF Witten when uh, the Navy and the Air Force had a joint squadron, 360 squadron. Did a spell there. Um, and then went back into Sea Harriers, served on illustrious art royal, things like that. And gradually went up through the ranks and what have you and um, was commissioned and did a bit of shipbuilding and all sorts of things. And eventually um, I... Uh, joined the Navy's own investigation body, which was uh, the Royal Navy Flight Safety and Accident Investigation Centre, which was at Yeovilton. And then post the Padden Cave report, if you call the Nimrod in terrible situation in Afghanistan in 2006, I think, um, it was suggested that uh, the military formed a tri-service investigation branch the military air acts investigation branch which then evolved into the defense acts investigation branch and my commission came to an end uh, as that sort of um, came to fruition and um i had a little break and um six months or so doing what i wanted to do and uh and i knew that the arb would be looking for people so i put my hat in the ring and here i am nev yeah, that's a fascinating start, Bob. So um, how did you get into the AAIB itself? Well, um, so uh, first of all, I'm a chartered engineer. And uh, what they're looking for, what I had, 
and all my colleagues have actually is a broad engineering background. So we're experts in nothing in particular, apart from we like to think investigating accidents. Um, but you need to be very open-minded and, and, you know, uh, I went through quite a stiff selection process. Um, they have to take great care with who they select because there are aspects of the job which are, can be quite um, tough and traumatic. Um, and uh, gradually you sort of build your experience when you join the, the, the branch. Um, and every day you're learning something new. But to answer your question, yeah, so I was selected from a, a group of applicants and um, it was whittled down to me. And um, that was that. Here I am. So uh, you've had obviously various kind of positions within the Royal Navy, uh, Bob. Um, what do you enjoy the most uh, whilst you're in the Navy? Oh, the variety and uh, the friendship, camaraderie, and the the fact that the, the Navy was then and still is uh, full of opportunity. Um, they never say no. If somebody is is has an aptitude for something, is willing, and what have you. They are always very keen on developing people and 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 bringing them to their it's it's in their advantage, bringing them to their full you know fruition of their skills and what have you. Um, and it's the same with the other services as well, both the Air Force and the Army, of course, are the same. Um, they're looking for people who they can develop and who want to develop, and the world's your oyster. But I, I enjoyed it immensely. You know, I enjoyed looking after the the, the big boys' toys, if you like. Um, you know, ships and sea harriers and all of that sort of thing. I mean, there there is a serious business behind it, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's a mindset and what have you. But um, no, I um, I I don't think I had ever had a dull day or a boring day in the in the navy. Nev. Yeah, it sounds like you had a very wide uh, variety of work, actually, Bob. But just bringing you back to the AAIB now, uh, what's the training like to become an inspector? Okay, so um, first of all, you, you start with a broad experience, but actually everybody goes to Cranfield University to do the um, Safety and Accident Investigation course, which starts off, it's a six-week course, and it's part of an MSc. And it starts with the fundamentals, which is effectively multimodal. So, you know, if you're investigating an aircraft accident, an accident at sea, a maritime accident, or a rail accident, whatever, then the principles are the same. But then the second part of the course is becomes much more specialist in, in your field. So in my case, it's aviation. Uh, and that tends to look much more closely at the techniques and the processes that you might um, use doing an investigation um, and the protocols uh, and the, the legal framework and how um, the state investigative body operates and works. Um, and and that's, that's done at, at, at Cranfield, but you never stop learning. Every day, you know, in this job, there is something new to to learn or understand um so but the start is is granted so for for someone who's kind of leaving school and and who might who might want to sort of try and get a job within the aiib 
um, obviously the path is to go, as you said, um, to the college as such. But are there any kind of qualifications or grades or stuff that are required yeah. from, from school leavers? We, you, you need to build an experience in aviation um, because you, you are required to understand and interact with people who are often hugely experienced. Uh, they may be at very high levels within a manufacturer or an operator. And so you need to be able to talk at that level. And the only way to do that is to build on experience. So the inspector, certainly the engineering and all of the inspectors in the branch, and there's, there's three, four types in practice. So we have operations inspectors who are professional pilots. We have um, uh, recorded data specialists who are able to deal with all of the black box like data recorder stuff, electronics, avionics, that sort of thing. Um, and we have a human factors inspector who is an expert in, in the psychological side of things. Um, and, you know, those that the engineers have a very broad range of experience. So we have aerodynamicists, we have people from the, the airlines, the big airlines, you know, managing large fleets of aircraft. We have people from manufacturing, people from engine manufacturers. Um, so you need to build that experience. So if you're young and leaving school, then, and you want to be an inspector of engineering, an inspector of accidents, you know, in the engineering field, then, you know, start going into aircraft aeronautical engineering. And many companies have their own, especially the, the airlines, have their own safety investigation teams. Rolls-Royce has a safety investigation team. So there's the start of the sort of investigative world. So um, once, you, you know, you, you've got that, just keep an eye. We advertise reasonably not, not that often but regularly enough to keep a throughput um engineers and the inspectors tend to stay a long time it's a, a sort of uh, something that people are passionate about and they once they start they really go on until they retire but not always um and yeah that, that, that's the way to do it it's it's a broadness of experience actually bob uh, you you mentioned there about uh you've got uh sort of different uh, uh yeah, like Rolls Royce, for example, have their own sort of investigative sort of branches as well. Uh, I, I was intrigued to know, actually, like because uh, uh, there are quite certainly, as far as flying is concerned, there's some big differences between military and commercial. And I was yeah. interested. Uh, uh, Tony S in the chat room has actually asked the question: uh, How do civilian accident investigations differ from those in the military? Well, by by process and technique, not. There's, there's very little difference. Uh, having said that, the military do operate a service inquiry system where if there's an accident, they will convene a service inquiry. And that service inquiry is supported, mentored and guided by trained investigators as part of the Defence Accident Investigation Branch. And um, the trained investigators will start the investigation and triage it, if you like. And then... Uh, selected inquiry panel members will then um, take or sort of become part and take over the investigation and produce a report, make the recommendations accordingly. In the civil world, the principle um, is, is very similar, except there is no service inquiry it's, or no other body that inquires. The state investigative body, so that's the Air Act Investigation Branch, um, uh, will convene an investigation when a notifiable accident has occurred and um, form a team within the branch and 
deploy as required and then carry out a full and thorough investigation as required. But the processes, so the engineering, there's not a lot of difference really. Um, okay, we're dealing with fast jets sometimes in the military, but of course there are fast jets and large jets in the in the commercial civil aviation world, uh, as well as um, light GA aircraft and of course a variety of ultralights, microlights, um, helicopters and so on. Um, so the principles of investigation are the same. It's just the, the, the subtlety of how it's done as far as how the team is formed is different. We've got a couple of other questions that I'll take from the chat room, if that's okay, guys, while we're there. And we'll, we'll go back to some of our other questions in a moment. But uh, Captain Cruz is asking, uh, how is the jurisdiction when it comes to aircraft accidents and who decides which parties and entities investigate what? Yeah. Now, that's a great question, um, because, of course, that's something we, we deal with every day. I bet. So if, um, for example, there is an accident to a G-registered aircraft in the UK, then the Air Accident Investigation Branch has primacy and will uh, lead the investigation. So uh, at state of occurrence, it's the UK, state of registration is the UK, and so on. If that happens to be an aircraft which is uh, manufactured, say, in the United States, um, then uh, we invite, under international protocols and law, what's called an accredited representative. Um, and that is somebody who is entitled to become part and join in with the investigation. Okay. Um, and uh, they will bring with them so it's manufactured in the States. So they will bring with them what are called experts under international protocols. So they will be the manufacturer's representatives. So similarly, if we have an aircraft, um, perhaps of uh, on the G-Reg, which has an accident in, um, I don't know, France or somewhere like that, then the Bureau Enquête, French, our French uh, brethren will do, uh, will convene an investigation and we will be the accredited representatives. And that's usually one or two, usually one accredited representative, he will bring with him or she will bring with her um, a group of, or, or, or the manufacturer, who are then known as the experts, and the investigation is convened, and it's a big team effort. But the report and the recommendations are made by the state which is investigating the accident. But of course, we are part of that investigation, will comment and assist in constructing that report and those recommendations, uh, and so on. And similarly, if we have an, I don't know, an N-registered aircraft have an accident in the UK, um, then uh, the NTSB would uh, become the accredited representatives to us. So, that, so that's how it works. And all this is set out um, in ICAO Annex 13. Um, now, the but this was set up in the Chicago Convention of 1944. Okay, was set up. And I always think to myself, they had a bit of a sense of humour because it is Annex 13, investigation <laughs> of aircraft accidents. Um, but all those protocols were set up and they are um, effectively standards and recommended practices um, for the state investigative body. And all of those things are enshrined in the laws of various countries. So we have it enshrined in UK law that we have primacy. Um, we will take charge of the wreckage. We will conduct the investigation. We will make the safety recommendations. We will protect our information. Um, so, for example, cockpit voice recorders are protected. The 
data from them is the, 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 the audio recordings are protected. We are the only ones who are allowed to listen and deal with them. Um, the evidence is protected uh, so that we can conduct an impartial investigation. So that's, I hope that answers your question, but in a, in a nutshell, that's really where, where we are. So there are protocols which are internationally applied. Um, and it's a small world. I mean, you know, when you do deploy to an accident site abroad, the chances are you will know or know of um, the people you're going to be part of that team with. Wow. Nev. A question from uh, David Corston, uh, Bob. Um, do you think that cameras in the flight deck could be a good idea for accident investigations alongside the cockpit voice recorder and flight yes. data recorders? Yes, um, that's a very, very interesting question and a very live question, actually, because um, uh, as a result of the EC-135 accident uh, in the centre of Glasgow, in the Clutha pub, one of the recommendations which we made um, was that, uh, as well as uh, cockpit voice recorder, flight data recorders, that there are video recorders also fitted within the cockpit. And that recommendation was taken up. So state aircraft operated by the st on behalf of the state uh, have that now. And that's um, and certainly we were only only a few months ago we were looking at the the, the, the sort of commercial fitment of those to many aircraft. So yes, they are very helpful. They're only there, and they will be protected under law um, in the same way as the cockpit voice recorder uh, um, recordings are. Um, but they are useful, and they're only for accident investigation. Uh, and this is a point. And of course, um, cockpits are workplaces. Pilots and crews spend a lot of time in them. So there are the lighter moments and the flippant moments. We're not interested in those. Um, we're interested in, in what might have happened, or the human factor side of what might have happened. And sometimes seeing what people's hands or control movements are doing is vital to an investigation i can imagine yeah a question from uh, tony s in the chat room uh, he says how serious does an incident have to be before the aaaib gets involved in other words what what's the trigger for one of your investigations so, so if we go work downwards the the, the the highest level and the one that we'll, we will always deploy to is a fatal accident both whether whether it's a ga accident whether it's commercial air transport um, often uh, we're, we are notified of something happening and uh, the duty coordinator, so both 24-7, 365 days a year as a duty coordinator who has a team available to him to deploy or her to deploy at any time, um, will make the decision as to what we do. Often we ask for a correspondence, an accident, aircraft accident report form. So we will send out to the pilot um, or the crew a form for them to fill in and we'll look at it from there. But it's a judgment call and it's very much based on a, a sort of risk assessment. So what's happened? What could the consequences have been? What went right? What went wrong? Is there something to learn? Do we need to look at this more closely? And actually the catch-all is that the chief inspector of accidents can in, initiate an investigation on anything he sees fit um, in aviation. Um, so big handfuls, fatal, 
commercial air transport, usually deployed to, not always. Um, and then from there on, we make a judgment call. Yeah. Um, this is not meant to be a flippant uh, question, Bob, but uh, I have two highlights every month for me. One is my payday and the second one is the monthly AAIB report, which I always read. But in reading them over many years, I've noticed, certainly comparing them to the Irish ones uh, and Australia, New Zealand, South Africa in particular, I noticed that the format is are very, very similar across uh, the different continents. Is yep. this because um, the, uh, the AAIB actually train other um, boards as well? In no, 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 no. No. Um, there are variations on a theme, but actually all accident investigation reports are based and laid out uh, based on the protocol set out within Annex 30. So, for example, Section 1 will always be the facts, the facts of the matter, the details of the aircraft, the history of the flight, facts. Section two is always the analysis. So it's the assembly of those facts and working out what those facts are telling us and understanding. And then section three and section four, of course, are the conclusions and recommendations. So it's always set out like that. And that, again, was set out all those years ago in, in Annex 13. And it's 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 works. It's a, it's a good way of doing it. The slight variation on the theme often is that if we're doing what's called a bulletin report rather than a foreman or inspector's report, then we may not have all of the uh, subsections that we sometimes have. For example, there may be a, a section that says um, test methods used, for example. We don't tend to always do that. And so the, the uh, sort of aircraft accident report form, the correspondence ones, may have a history of flight, a synopsis, history of flight, and then go into a discussion um, or a, a, or an analysis of, of what was taken apart or examined and what was found. So, yes, so uh, the reports you see from Ireland, for example, yes, they did look very similar, and there's a reason for that. It's just sort of a, it's just sort of a formula, essentially. It's uh, yes. just sort of agreed. Uh, now, uh, Micah actually is asking uh, one of the questions. It's like so. Obviously, the AIB here in the UK. What, uh, for our US listeners, what is the sort of similar equivalent to yourself? So the equivalent is the National Transportation Safety Board, in right? The US or Transport Safety Board Canada, right? So um, again, uh, state investigative bodies, um, well found, well funded, well trained. Um, and again, we're very used to working with with all of them. Uh, there are international forums, and we meet them all on a regular basis when we can. Pandemics permitting, of course. Um, but yes, so it's the NTSB is the US equivalent, who actually are have, have a slightly wider remit than we do. We are not multimodal, although there is a rail branch. And there is a marine accident investigation branch. Oh, wow. Um, the NTSB, um, National Transportation Safety Board, look at railways, roads, um, pipelines, I think, as well, uh, and maritime accidents as well. So it, they're, they're multimodal, but of course have aviation specialists. Okay, so uh, two very quick questions, uh, if I may. One from Dan Brennan it's like, can you set an argument for me? How do you define an accident or an incident? Ah, so uh, <laughs> I, I can. The, the best way for me to settle that really is um, 
is to ask you to actually look on the Annex 13 because, of course, it, the, 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 there are subtle differences. Accident when aircraft is is badly damaged, and there's a whole category of sets of damage uh, where there is injury or sadly fatal, um, or the aircraft is missing um, and um, has not been located. An incident is lesser, so that's uh, effectively bumps and scrapes or things that didn't go quite as planned that people walked away from. Um, but they are categorised. Uh, we, we could be here quite a while going through the, the whole list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, yeah it's, a, it's a whole show right there just on yes. that one subject. Yes. yes. Uh, now, obviously, uh, you know, we're, as, as Nev says, obviously it's, it's the highlight of his, one of the highlights of his month is, is sort of thumbing through the reports and stuff. But with the more serious incidences, presumably, obviously, that does bring another challenge uh, that I would see in the fact obviously you've got to report that information to an official body or indeed yeah. a, a day in court I mean what must what's that like for you guys to sort of take your uh, your findings if you like to you know because these things are very serious yes yeah, so so um with fatal accidents um under UK law um there's a fatality within English or Scottish UK jurisdiction then there will be an inquest. Now, in the in England, that there is an inquest. Wales there's an inquest, uh, and same in Northern Ireland. But in Scotland, there's a thing called a fatal accident inquiry. They're, they're very similar, but there are subtleties in the law. But um, those, um, the inquests, answer four questions. The who, the where, and the when, beyond doubt. And the how, or by what means. And it's the by what means that person met their death is where we are invited to give evidence. Our evidence is the report. So we speak to the report uh, in the court, so in the inquest. Um, however, of course, there are going to be questions about how we came to our conclusions, what we did. So, of course, we're there to answer and effectively um, fill out or fill in those details so the coroner or in the case of scotland can fully understand um and draw his verdict on on the facts because of course coroners and juries are invariably juries where we're concerned because a state body has carried out an investigation so there'll be a jury the coroner has to be absolutely sure that he and his jury completely understand what has happened and of course the chances are many of those people on the jury, Ron himself, won't have an aviation background. So we have to prepare ourselves to to answer all those questions so that they understand fully what we're saying in our report. I sort of like sort of break it down into plain English almost, I suppose. Yes. So it's, it's, yes. It's so, sort of... so, so half of the skill of an investigator is is not just the Taking the tin, as we call it, you know, on the accident site and taking things apart, examining things, and all that sort of stuff. It's actually being able to put it into plain English such that people will be able to understand completely what we're saying. But also that those who are empowered to take action to correct or, or um, change things to make things better, act on the recommendations, absolutely understand what we're doing, and what we're saying, and what happened. So it can be fixed. Um, and, yeah, you, you have to be quite good at explaining complex uh, techniques, complex systems, um, 
or flying characteristics to people who may never have come across them before. I mean, and the other thing that is sort of uh, looking at it from because I mean everybody knows I mean my background I, I don't know hardly anything about aviation so I would be your worst nightmare in that court scenario trying to explain to me what it was but one of the things that occurs to me actually um, is when you're when you're turning up to these these sometimes awful incidents or accidents I mean it must be very difficult to sort of take the the human element out of it you know your 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 immediate sort of compassion and things like that it must be very difficult to sort of switch that off and and look at the the facts almost yeah um so well we do have training for that but um i did deploy uh to a fatal accident only this weekend actually um and you prepare yourself mentally uh but you're there to do a job you're there to find out what happened, what went wrong. And it may be that the deceased is still there and uh, you do have to uh, make a judgment examination of, of where that person is in the aircraft and what he might be holding and all that sort of stuff. You know, what pages he got open on the flight reference cards, perhaps, something like that. Um, but you also have to show great care and compassion and respect the dignity of those concerned. Um, and you you have to be calm and you have to think and be methodical um but of course you also have to deal with the families yeah um and it, it may be that you will meet the family and, and, and often we do invariably we do and you've got to remind yourself that these people are having the worst day of their life probably if not the worst mm-hmm. weeks of their life so you have to be very careful in how you conduct yourself what you say and what you do and you have to remain professional and detached, but mindful that being too detached could be seen as perhaps being a little aloof and not caring. That's a cold so, almost, yeah. Yes, yes. So, so that, that's an important aspect. Um, but, you know, you, you are there to do a job. You're there to understand and you owe it to that person to, to, to try and find out what went wrong. It may also be, you always have to have have in mind that um, you may get to the bottom of what's happened and that the truth of the matter could be unpalatable to to families Mm. um, because it it turns out that that person made a decision or took an action which resulted in the accident. So, yeah, Mm. so you you have to be very careful and mindful of that. Wow. We've got um, some questions uh, from Armando. I know he's not with us this week, but he has uh, he's left us some instructions. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the first ones, Bob, that uh, Armando's got here on the list is um, how important are records such as operations records, maintenance training records, weather reports, etc., to the investigation process? And uh, have you ever discovered uh, records that have been altered uh, for an investigation? Uh, firstly, yes. Um, I always have a sort of uh, a mantra, but a sort of mindset, and that is that when you deploy to an accident and start an investigation, all bets are on. In other words, there is nothing that you're not interested in. And that includes records, historical records, certification, training records, operational records, weather reports, uh, radar reports, air traffic reports, all of those things vitally important uh, because in amongst those records 
may be the little piece of information which leads you to understanding what caused the accident. So yeah, it's 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 they're, they're vital and it's all part of the evidence. And we gather it, we go around and collect it. When there is an accident under UK law, that evidence is protected and must be impounded. Uh, so if, for example, um, an operator um, has an accident to an aircraft, then they must immediately effectively secure the documents, secure the electronic data, because of course there's tons of electronic data uh, which is kept about an aircraft on the ground. The aircraft is squirting data at ground stations consequently, all that has to be locked and secured effectively. So it, it's vitally important, it's all part of it, until we know it's not. Uh, and so that's why we methodically go through everything. And, and yes, I have gone through records of aircraft uh, that were for an accident, you know, say two or three years ago, and looking at aircraft uh, data going back to the 1940s. Wow. So, you know, you do, as I say, all bets are on. Not always. Mainly it's a, sort of the last six months is, is the interesting stuff. Um, alteration or, or anything which we find... I've not come across falsification of documents. I have been told um, falsehoods by individuals <laughs> in the past, um, but you can usually have a sixth sense and pick up what, what, what people, whether they're telling the truth or not, to you. But if we uncover uh, the possibility that a crime might have been committed, so for example, if there is a a piece of um, information which is perfect, fraudulent, completely fraudulent, then we have to inform the police or the authorities accordingly. And just just out of interest on, on that, Bob, actually, Tony said in the in the chat room there, saying if an accident involves a criminal or or negligence, do you guys have a priority in terms of evidence over the police? No. Um, well, uh, that's that's an excellent question, and the best example of that is, of course, the the most famous and saddest example, of course, is Lockerbie. Mm. So there was a crime committed. Uh, without a doubt but until you know it's a crime it's an accident and so uh my predecessors of which there's one still in the branch actually who was involved in the Lockerbie investigation um had to work methodically through that and gradually it came to light and then evidence more firm evidence came to light that it was a crime so the, the issue that we, we wrestle with and we have put things in place for now is whether there's uh, a terrorist act, for example, which is another, uh, uh, sort of thing we have to think about, where the police will open an investigation in parallel to us. Um, but we have primacy over the evidence at an accident site. And, of course, if we um, interview somebody, uh, we cannot give that interview or that name that person to the authorities of police they have to re-interview uh, and locate that person themselves the reason for that yeah that so, so the reason for that again is enshrined in international law and in uk law and that is that we do not apportion blame or liability and that we work uh, anonymously in other words we do not name names and we do not give uh information like that to other 
bodies. The reason being that if we did, nobody would ever talk to us. True. We do safety investigations, and that's the important thing. We're, we're not there to do a criminal investigation. If after our investigation is complete, somebody decides that they, they want to take lit- litigation, then that's up to them. Uh, and they will have to gather their own evidence and uh, accordingly. We get into some difficulties with courts asking us to disclose, disclose things which are protected, but that only a high court can do that. And that has happened on a couple of occasions recently. Um, and one particular example, which I won't give, but failed to get the high court behind it. Another one didn't so we 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 had to give up some of the evidence my goodness me so 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 yours is your 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 role almost is it is your focus is more about sort of almost preventative i suppose you're looking at what happened to try and make sure that doesn't happen again essentially rather than gathering evidence for in terms of prosecution and things like that yes absolutely absolutely none of our interviews are conducted under under pace for example police and criminal evidence act um and we are there solely to understand what happened, both what went wrong and what went right in many cases. So don't forget, some accidents could be a lot worse had not safety devices or safety procedures or protocols switched in and prevented it becoming worse than it already was, uh, and then reporting accordingly. Because we, we, it, it's, it's one of those things that if you constantly chip away at... Um, uh, the, the things that go wrong in aviation um, and make recommendations to fix things, gradually aviation becomes safer and safer and safer to the standard that it is today. And we have really all our predecessors to thank the work they did in the past with some of the famous accidents that, that have occurred, to, which has, has altered aviation and made it such a safe thing to do. Actually, we've got another uh, mess or another question, I should say, from Armando, uh, Bob. And it's going back to the technology and, and stuff inside the uh, the cockpit of these aircraft. But there's been, he says, some uh, tremendous advances in general aviation and light aircraft technology, sometimes rivaling uh, that of business jets. Yeah. How, how do you extract and analyze information from systems such as engine monitors, GPS, yeah. iPads <laughs> and yeah. flight planning software and even cameras that, uh, more and more people are, are using yes. on flights these days. Yeah, so for, for example, the GoPro and, 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 and of course, I suppose other action cameras are available, but um, <laughs> yes, so there is a lot of electronic data. And you just imagine um, the amount of data held within a Garmin 1000 cockpit, for example. Um, some of it is kept on, on cards and what have you, SD cards, uh, or, or PCMIA cards are remarkably robust, actually, and do survive accidents. But much of the data in, in some of the avionics systems we've got, particularly data bus systems, um, are held, or, or the immediate data is held within what we call non-volatile memories. And that's where the, the my colleagues in the recorded data group really come into their own. And they can be presented with a, a, a printed circuit or a, 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 an integrated circuit, which is by all means sort of virtually destroyed and might even be burned. And they do have practical techniques and sk- the skills to often remount those things, um, uh, repower them up and extract the data. 
and then analyze the data and explain how or what happened. So um, there's a lot more data in even simple GA aircraft than there ever was. Uh, and we do have ways and means of, of getting at it, and getting to it. iPads and or tablets, of course, used more and more with um, some of the navigation apps, which are brilliant. Um, again, we have methods and techniques where we can get into those. Sometimes we need commercial help with companies who can uh, effectively get past the software walls and what have you. Um, but yeah, so so we gather all of that and and then see what we can get from it. Can I ask you, uh, Bob, um, how easy or difficult is it to work with partner agencies such as ATC, uh, aircraft component manufacturers or, or private operators? C can you bring these people in as subject matter experts? Yes, yeah, yeah. So, for example, um, if um, and we do use forensic laboratories and metallurgists or fuel test places, um, we also use the expertise of some of the universities uh, and the military, of course. So back to the Navy, the Navy itself has its own uh, um, metallurgy laboratories and what have you, um, which are down in Portsmouth Dockyard. And so we ask uh, for their assistance and they become part of the investigation. Um, they have confidentiality clauses, of course, which we, we stitch into things. But... Um, yeah, we, we, we work very closely with all agencies required. So, um, be it be NATS, um, uh, CAA, of course. We're not part of the CAA. We're independent of the CAA. But obviously, they they're a vast repository of data um, for you know certification of an aircraft, pilot records, medical records, all those sort of things. Um, and, of course, the manufacturers. Uh, we work very closely with their own investigators. And if they haven't got investigators, we're their engineers or test pilots or whatever so yeah and it's it, 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 we like to think we have a lot of friends in the industry um and they understand and it is in their interest often to work closely with us because we can get to the and improve if we improve things they can improve their product or whatever you know it's um it's a team thing and, and the, the detail uh, you go into is enormous. And I've seen a number of reports, and this is just from entirely me speaking from an amateur point of view, uh, where it's been what I would consider a bit of a minor incident. And you've churned out a 64-page report on it. Uh, yeah. And it's taken months and months and months to, to, to get to the truth. So it's a, it's a massively detailed exercise, isn't it? Yes, it is. And we like to think that we are as thorough as, as needed and as accurate as needed. There is no room for guesswork or speculation in aviation safety. So um, we try to be accurate. We double check, check, and check again. We do make mistakes. We're not too proud to admit that sometimes we make errors or mistakes, and we will publish uh, the correction if required. There may be uh, major differences of opinion from uh, a third party. Um, but we base our investigations on evidence. And if, if by any chance, a piece of evidence comes to light which may change the outcome, then under the regulations, we, the chief inspector can reopen investigation. But that's very, very rare. Um, but yeah, we, we do. And, and a lot of um, the work we do 
is you don't see in the report. We have to do it through due diligence and, and so that we have explored every avenue. Uh, and certainly as a lot of work goes on behind the scenes of ones where we really can't, some, some accidents we really cannot explain beyond doubt what happened. I mean, that, that must be really frustrating for you, though, I guess, because, you know, as you say, you're, you're, you want to get to the bottom of everything, don't you? Yes, yes, you do. And um, that's what you, you're working towards, the, the sort of, um, we, how do you forgive the sort of uh, analogy, but the smoking gun, <laughs> by the smoking gun, then great. Um, and sometimes you, you're working away, you're looking at the evidence, and suddenly it dawns on you, everything fits together, you go, aha. That's what happened. And then you suddenly realise that it all fits together. But what you don't do is try and fit the evidence to a theory. You've got to let the evidence drive the theory and drive the outcome. Have, have you ever had a, ever had a bit of... I appreciate you can't be specific, obviously, but have you been involved in an investigation where the conclusions have surprised you in the end? It sort of didn't go down the route that you were expecting. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I can't give you an example off the top of my head, but yes, there are certain, there, there, there have been occasions where we think, oh, where, where did that come from? Right. Um, and there was a, a, a inspector, a colleague of mine, who recently retired, who'd been at the branch since 1972, actually. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he, he always had a sort of mantra which said, and it'll be something we were least expecting. <laughs> um and you know that's through through you know nearly 50 years of experience but yeah that that there are sort of left field things if you like suddenly come to light um not often but there, there are occasionally and you think ah that that really is a surprise yeah i bet actually for a question from a self inquisitive question i've always wondered um, you know, I'm a big uh, fan of the air uh, crash investigation series that uh, they show on TV, yeah. uh, which you guys have featured in many times as well yeah. as the NTSB. Yeah, yes. um, you, you kind of see the program and you, you hear about the go team that the NTSB have and you yeah. sort of see how they grab a bag and they run out of a room and they're, they're on, you know, on, on site, yeah. but kind of sort of sum up a kind of the beginnings for you as an investigator. Yes. Do you get a phone call? You know, yes. there's been a crash. Yeah, yeah. How does how does a day start so, for you? So let, let me just put a couple of little bits to bed. <laughs> that is, we don't go running around, uh, you know, grabbing bags and what have you. So the Air Accident Investigation Branch uh, has uh, two teams uh, available uh, throughout the year, 24-7, 365. And the teams will be uh, an engineer, an ops inspector, a professional pilot, recorded data group and the human factors inspector who is is, is ready to, to assist at any stage. If a notification uh, is phoned in or is received by whatever means, and we keep an eye on the media, of course, the one of the principal inspectors, so it's a, a very experienced in, in investigator who is uh, the duty coordinator will decide what we do. And as happened to me on Sunday, I will be phoned and we then uh, gather our equipment. I usually, I leave from home, go to the branch, collect uh, my kit, which is ready to go at any time. So there is a go kit. So I do have a little suitcase pack. I have my tools and equipment packed. I have foul weather gear and all the things you'd need. Throw them in the back of a vehicle and 
off you go. So uh, you then go to where you're told, to the site. Uh, you, the police are usually uh, controlling the site. Uh, the site is now under my jurisdiction, but it's still protected by the police. Uh, and we start the investigation. Very little running about. It's less speed, more haste. It's a lot of information to gather. There's a lot of um, stuff to think about. What are the risks? What am I dealing with? Uh, how big is the aircraft? What sort of things might be a danger to the public on the aircraft? So let's if we go back to something like, a: uh, is there a, 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 a ballistic parachute recovery system fitted? Is it unstable? Is it, Where's the fuel? Uh, what are the stored energy devices? All that sort of stuff. So we think carefully um, and just make sort of a, get an idea of what we're going to be faced with before we go to the site. Uh, the ones that we will start to move a bit more quicker for would be, for example, if we had um, a main runway blocked at Heathrow or something like that, where actually there is now a big risk starting to build because of aircraft having to divert, hold, etc. So we will endeavour to get there as, as quickly and as safely as possible. It's, it's just so fascinating. It, it really is. Uh, actually, uh, Mash is suggesting you know once retirement beckons that I think some memoirs are very much needed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually, Bob, did you um, did you work? I mean, I, I suppose ask the question: Did you um, work at all on the BA thirty eight at uh, London Heathrow at all? Uh, just remind that the fact that, that was I, the triple seven. Yeah. No, I didn't. My colleagues uh, did. So actually, the, the, the person who led that investigation is now the Deputy Chief Inspector. Um, so Mike, 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 as we call it. Um, yes, uh, that was a big team. Yeah. So uh, they will have... Uh, and what they did in that case with an aircraft of that size and a, an accident of that magnitude, and fortunately, nobody lost their lives. They're fantastic. Uh, its safety systems did just about what they were designed to do. But they separated the team, if I recall and believe, into um, uh, so there was a team looking at landing gear, team looking at engines, team looking at um, uh, evacuation, all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, and of course, that's uh, something as big as that requires a lot of other agencies. So somebody to lift and shift the wreckage, um, police, air traffic, all of the things that the airport had to do um, to a keep. The other air, aircraft safe, uh, and, and B start a full investigation. I mean that that again must present its own challenges because I mean obviously with a with an incident of, of that nature obviously and it's come down just short of the threshold of the runway. I mean Heathrow is well known for being the most busiest airport, yeah. you know certainly in, on these shores, isn't it? I mean. There must be um, pressure from yes. um, the 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 other people involved, if you like, at the airport to sort of, you know, sort of well, to sort of hurry you up. I mean, that that must yes. present its own challenges. It, it does. And I give an example of that. I deployed uh, well, three four years ago to Bristol, um, where uh, Embraer one four five, I think it was, if I recall, had uh, effectively left the runway. Um, it was landed with its parking brake on. Long story, but uh, nevertheless, it uh, landed and came to a stop in the safety area. And of course, that closed the airport. So we arrived. This is two days before Christmas. 
Oh my goodness. So we arrived and of course it's it's now ramping up to be one of the busiest weekends in normal times that you'd probably ever get um, every year, I suppose. And um, I was faced with a, a, an airfield staff who were under immense pressure from the operators, from the public, to find out what's going on, to get their airfield back and so on. But the regulations are there and uh, until I'm happy with that we've gathered all the evidence. Um, I cannot hand it back, all the aircraft back to anybody until we've done that. But that does mean that rather than arriving and, and taking hours and hours, we can prioritize what we can do. And one of the things was uh, to inspect the runway pretty quickly and get, get that back to them so they can start repairing the runway surface for use. There was a bit of damage. Um, and then making sure that uh, we could give them a, a sort of step-by-step -step return to operation. Of course, the stress levels in the poor airfield manager that day oh, were huge. <laughs> um, and um, so this poor chap was sort of getting more and more worried as, as time went on, but we did it as quickly and as safely and as accurate as we could before being able to hand it back to them. But yeah, the pressures are huge. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Um, and uh, the commercial pressures. But of course, if you've got aircraft that are airborne, uh, and he throws a great example, you've got aircraft coming back across the Atlantic, their options for diversion become less and less as long as time goes on. True. Mm. Um, and so you've got to really be mindful of that. So hence, we would not just send a small team. It's a very big team to get as much done as quickly as possible. Gather as much data, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, we'll just fill another question quickly from Armando. I know Nev's got some more for you as well from the chat room. Um, one of the other questions Armando asks, and it's a question actually I think we've, we've asked ourselves in the uh, on the show before. Uh, why do investigations take so long relatively? Uh, sometimes it will be years after the fact that a report is published. Um, well, years is a very, is an extremist. Um, the longest... Uh, that I have, have engaged in was two years. And the reason for that was we really did not know what had caused and still really don't know why a certain uh, chain of events occurred um, with a particular aircraft. And so we keep going, revisiting and re-looking at everything in case we've missed something. Uh, our, we do have sort of aim points we do like to sort of aim to get a report out within six months six to nine months if possible the deputy chief and the chief inspector try and keep us to that but of course they're mindful that we've got to be accurate and mm. if we rush we could miss something but yeah it, it can be once but but actually some of that time is null time if you like and that is where we send a report out for consultation under one of our regulations, Regulation 16.1. We always call it the 16, we're at 16.1. And what that does is we send a draft report in confidence to organizations or individuals who rep whose reputations may be affected by what we're saying. Now, under UK law, they have 28 days. Under EU law, so that's what all, all, the, all our um, overseas brethren will do, they have 60 days to comment. So it could, that adds a month or two months uh, straight away. However, 
and this is important, and this is obviously, people, you, you know, I can hear people think, well, hold on a minute, what if there's something urgent we need to fix or recommend? We have a method whereby we can issue what's called a um, special bulletin. And that can be issued at any time during an investigation where we need to urgently draw something to somebody's attention to make a recommendation or to enact a recommendation. With a, a high profile major accident, that doesn't have to be a big aircraft, it can be a small aircraft, and let's draw your minds back to the Glasgow helicopter. We often issue a, a special bulletin within a week or so, so that we can tell the public where we are with it, where we're going with it, and, and what the progress and what the process will be. Um, and those documents are read very carefully by industry or the industry and operators, because we will put in there if there's something they need to think about or look at. But we always reserve the right to completely go off on a tangent if evidence directs us that way. Nev, you've got. Uh, some yeah, I was just thinking on. that you know your uh, your toolkit has gone from probably you know a pencil and a clipboard and a tape measure uh, to you know very high resolution photography and also drones possibly. And yeah. I was just wondering whether, in fact, it was Alex in the, in the chat room asked, uh, are you making use of drone of drones yes. uh, to photograph accident sites? Yes. Yes. So, uh, so just, just at the start of your question, you mentioned pencil and tape measure and what have you. Yes, there are pencils and tape measures, a big Stanley tape measure in my, my go kit, uh, as well as adjustables and all sorts of things. Uh, but yes, we do. We have, um, our, we have a, a group of people, the engineering support staff are, are qualified drone pilots and we have, um, a selection of drones at our disposal, which we use, um, mindful of staying within regulations. I'll talk, talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but um, we we will overfly and photograph a site. Uh, and then we link that with various software packages. And sometimes we will build a three-dimensional picture or a fly-through, if you like, of the site. Uh, we may refly the route or the trajectory of the aircraft. Um, I did an investigation a little while, some years ago, where reflying the trajectory of the aircraft showed me how the power lines which this aircraft hit became completely invisible when viewed from the air against the striations in the field made by the harrow the farmer had used. Oh, wow. The wires totally disappeared. You could only see that if you'd done it by from the air, and the drone was brilliant for doing that. Um, so we do. We use... Uh, uh, we have a selection of drones uh, and qualified pilots. I will confess uh, uh, a little while back, uh, myself and um, my engineering support colleague did have a little bit of an accident with our drone and a tree, um, <laughs> which um, was so duly Did you feature in your, your own report then? <laughs> we, 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 it was just be we do report on drones. It was just before we got the legislation in to, to, to suggest that we do have to. But yeah, it's a little bit embarrassing. Um, and rather costly to a, a very expensive camera lens. Not bad. <laughs> um, and a bit of pride dented. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> oh, that's the worst. <laughs> maybe, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we do use drones, yes. Another question I've got for you, Bob. 
obviously many, many people who watch this show, including me, uh, Matt and Nev and Armando as well, are all very good uh, uh, lovers of uh, apps like Flight Radar 20 Floor, yeah. uh, for, yeah. uh, Flight Tracker, all the various ADSB Exchange on, on yes. your desktop browser. Yes. Um, you know, we all look at these daily, wonder what's up in the sky and stuff. Is, is that a tool that, that the AIB can use in an investigation? Yes, yep, yeah, and often do. Huh? And But we will go into the, the operator or the owner of that system um, and ask for data, the data that's in the cloud or the, the, the data that they've recorded and, and the background data, a lot of things. Um, they are very helpful. The So certainly the tracking apps are useful um they're very accurate actually in many ways sometimes not so but, but often are and of course the navigation apps are also very useful and if if a pilot's been using one of those and is no longer able to speak to us we can often see what whether he's looked at the weather whether he looked at the notams whether he's taken heed of the warnings whether his route and his altitude that he selected for that route took him into danger. And of course, those systems often scream quite loudly if you're about to uh, uh, plan yourself into an infringement, for example. <laughs> mm, um, a sky demon does that, yeah. Yes, so uh, we do, yeah, absolutely. As I said, I mean, it's, it all bets are on, so everything is interesting until it's not. Nev, you've got one, uh, another one from Armando, haven't you? Yes, uh, Armando says uh, aircraft don't seem to crash on an airfield on a sunny day. What, what are some of the more challenging scenarios that you face, such as terrain or weather, for example? Yes, uh, well, um, first of all, we do actually engage in quite a bit of rough terrain training. Uh, we go to Wales for that with a, an organisation up in Wales, fantastic place, but teaches us to to not become casualties when we're out in the middle of nowhere. And you don't have to be in the middle of nowhere to be a casualty. Hypothermia and, and heat, and, and, you know, often in the summer it is hot, sunny days. And if you spend, you know, 12 hours or so, perhaps it can be in, in a field in Norfolk on high summer, <laughs> and you don't take proper precautions, you're going to get pretty sunburnt and pretty dehydrated before long. So we have specialist training, but um, we have had to engage uh, in investigations on mountainsides. And one of my colleagues uh, ended up having to abseil down um, a cliff um, up on the Yorkshire coast some years ago with a helicopter. So, yeah, we, we, we train for those. We train for the adverse circumstances. Um, but again, we're not too proud to ask for help. So we would... So, for example, if there was a, an accident on a Welsh mountainside, then we would engage the local mountain rescue team to assist us, um, or the Air Force mountain rescue team to assist in getting to the site safely and, and so on. But we take, again, we've got a lot of equipment, a lot of uh, kit, we take precautions uh, and risk assess everything we do. So we've got another one. I've got another one here. Quick, we might as well get this next one done from Armando. Otherwise, he'll um, he'll get upset. <laughs> he'll be complaining. Yes. Yeah. Um, Armando's asking, how easy or difficult is it to work with partner agencies such as air traffic control, ATC, uh, aircraft component manufacturers, or private operators? It, it, it's 
most in my experience it's usually quite easy and they're, they're very helpful and, and want to find out what is is wrong you do occasionally come across people who are not necessarily as cooperative as you you'd like but um one of the things that this job does exercise is your diplomatic skills those simple body language things which put people at ease or um uh sort of suggest to people that you're actually on their side and not a threat um and we are very very careful a lot of nervousness with modern tech or new technologies is of course intellectual property so we're very careful to protect uh intellectual property um and only in in circumstances where it's vital to reveal that will we do so um for the the aviation safety side of it but in my experience i've never really had anybody who's sort of put their hand up and say go away i'm not talking to you um so it, again we we're very careful to work at that um you know there are occasions where uh we have to sort of drill a little bit further than than perhaps we normally have to to get down to the nitty gritty of what we're asking but most of the time people are pretty cooperative well, that's that that is good to hear uh laura uh, has uh, got a question here in the chat room saying are there any overall trends uh that you're identifying in recent years as far as causes of accidents or any yes. increases in the uh, in the certain you know types of causes for accidents yes yeah so um i'm one of my other hats at the airb is that i'm the editor of the annual safety review the annual safety review publishes all our statistics again it's available online we're just working on 2020s it always takes a while to pull together so we get all of the facts we need to show to the public um together so for example in GA aviation the by far the biggest cause of of accidents both fatal and non-fatal is what we call locky loss of control in flight so that will be something as simple as as, as stalling or spinning or something like that uh or just making incorrect um control input right at the, the wrong point um uh so yeah loss of control in flight is the, is the biggest and seems to be the one which we just cannot push further down the, the scale mm-hmm. uh in commercial air transport it's not quite as simple um that's that's a loss of control in flight is very very rare um but there are occasions where for example if if a crew haven't got on the glide path correctly or something like that where we find um you know it's a sort of unstable approaches is probably the the biggest one at, at the moment perhaps but wow. yeah so there are trends and we do try and monitor them absolutely well i suppose that's that's for your own benefit i suppose as well isn't it because yes. you're, you're yeah. looking for for patterns and things like that yeah so we're going to start to uh, to wrap up uh, with you, Bob. But uh, there's there's always one question that we ask our guests on the show, and actually because you're a PPL license holder as well, this must might be a good one for you as well. But Nev, what's that uh, all important question that we like to ask our guests before we uh, wrap up? Yes, it is the question. Uh, and uh, given the chance to fly any aircraft at all, Bob, whether it's uh, GA, commercial, military, uh, it could be retired, it could be a current aircraft, what would that aircraft be? Uh, no doubt, easy Sea Fury. 
Oh, fantastic. Oh, okay, well okay. done. We've not had that before. Not absolutely no doubt. So, what is it about the Sea Fury that, that, that gets you all excited? <laughs> well, it's one of the fastest and best piston engine aircraft ever built, probably. In my opinion, there are other views, I'm sure. Uh, it's just phenomenal. And don't forget, Sea Fury, I think, is the only piston engine aircraft on record that actually got the better of a jet. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. 1951, uh, Lieutenant Hoji Carmichael in the mid-15 in the Korean War. Fantastic. There you I go. Know. Good uh, advice answer. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a great, uh, uh, Jonathan Warner, who is a big military fan, is, is agreeing with you massively there, yes. saying the Fury is beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Jonathan Warner is, is very kindly donated the, the pictures that me and Matt have behind mm-hmm. us for tonight's show, so yeah. thanks for them, Jonathan. But... Uh, we're going to say a massive thanks to you, Bob, for coming on the show. I'm hopefully you're going to you're going to stick with us for a little yes. while. We've got to with My the commercial pleasure. news, uh, but it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm so pleased we got uh, managed to get you on on the show, and uh, yeah, it's been good, isn't it, Nev? Superb, and uh, yeah, lots of great questions from the chat room, and uh, we really appreciate your time this evening, Bob. Thanks uh, so much. Very, very absolutely. As I say, my pleasure. So, on behalf of all the team, Bob, yeah, cheers. Thank you very much, and. Uh, We are going to be back uh, right after this. Hello and welcome to another Plain Truth. And this week we're going to be talking about squawks. Joining me as always is the legend that is Captain Al. Hi Captain Al. Hello and a very good evening. A very good evening to you too. Now this is a slightly odd one because I don't know a great deal about aviation as people know but I I am familiar with the the word squawk and I I seem to recall from various things that I've been reading online etc there's this 7700 and really I wanted to know what on earth they're all about and uh, I mean I presume there's a list of these codes for example I mean what, what, what are the codes for and why are they used as opposed to just say saying mayday or, or something like that okay so let's uh let's have a look at what squawks are so they are codes that are put into a transponder so what is a transponder well it's an electronic box that allows the aircraft to identify itself to a radar ground station so if we go back a little bit to the invention of radar and most people who aren't aviation related will have a mental picture of what's best described as an upturned dustbin lid with a little sweepy line that goes round and round and little blips, which is pretty accurate, really, or certainly was up until a few years ago. So that sort of old-style radar with just little blips is great. But how do we know which blip is which? So prior to the invention of transponders, what the radar controller would do would be to get an aircraft to turn, say, left uh, 40 degrees, and they would see which blip moved to the left by 40 degrees, and that would allow them to identify that blip, and they would make a mental note then as to which blip was which aircraft. Uh, As you can start to see, controllers of that era had to have a pretty good short-term memory because they were memorising which blip as it moved across the screen. Wow. Not easy to do. No, I bet. And and obviously, quite a few blips on your screen. So, uh, as more and more... Uh, aircraft were flying around the the fallibilities of this system were becoming to be quite well known so the military had for a little while something called iff not something i know an awful lot about 
but IFF stands for interrogate friend or foe. So if you imagine a box in your aeroplane and all of the people on your side have a similar box and when the two boxes chat to each other, it goes, I'm friendly, don't shoot me, (laughs) then you can identify your team from the other team. Because if the other team don't have a box that sends back the same message, then you can assume them to be a foe. That's a very, very simple way of uh, looking at it. But yeah, interrogate friend or foe. So let's go back to the the civilian world. So civilian aircraft have a little box of electronics called a transponder. And what happens is that on the front of that box are some buttons or dials. And you can select a number between zero and seven. So zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay. Um, And you can do that for four independent digits. So you could have zero, 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 or anything up to seven, 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 seven. Okay. So it gives you quite a few combinations. Off the top of my head, and I'm not a mathematician, I think that's 4,096, but please don't quote me on that. That's just a, a number that I may, it may well come from a Chinese takeaway that I'm familiar with that number. Um, but if there are any mathematicians, they might be able to prove or disprove my 4,096. 4, anyway, it gives you a number of com- combinations. So what happens is that when the aircraft is interrogated by the ground radar now, Uh, Apart from sending its return back by virtue of being metal, it sends back the code that is on the transponder. So if air traffic control over the voice radio, say Monarch 123, Squawk 1230, the pilots would select on their transponder box 1230, and that code will then be sent back to the ground station. The boxes on the ground will then associate that code with that blip and therefore the controller is no longer looking at just a blip he has a blip and the code that has been sent by the aircraft in this particular case one two three zero so now he's got to look at the blip see the code and remember which code he gave to which aircraft now he's probably going to write that down because most will (laughs) as technology progressed a little bit further the computer on the ground was able to convert that number into the aircraft call sign. So now you have a blip and the aircraft call sign, a lot easier for the controller, obviously. So where the origins of Squawk come from, truthfully, I don't know. I can only assume that it's the equivalent of just shouting out your identification. So we've gone from sort of basic radar to radar with what was called mode alpha transponders, which is the ability to send that four-digit code that is allocated to you. And each air traffic control unit may well change that code. So you might start off with, you know, 4545, and then the next controller might give you uh, 6123 or something like that, and you will just change them. Uh, After a little bit of while, technology came along and allowed the aircraft to not only send its code, but to also send its altitude. So, as you can imagine, previously the controllers had to have a pretty good 3D model in their head because you're looking at a two-dimensional display for a three-dimensional world. So now their situational awareness is enhanced because when the aircraft sends its altitude, the little box on the ground will interpret that 
And then on the radar display will be the blip, the four-digit code, which has now been converted into the call sign, and the aircraft's altitude. So that builds the picture up. We'll go forwards a few more steps, and then the transponder technology advanced a bit more, so that the altitude reporting was mode C, mode Charlie, uh, and then we went on to mode Sierra, and now the transponder is able to send a lot more data. So, for example, it can send the call sign, uh, it can send the speed that we're flying at, uh, the speed that we've asked the aeroplane to fly at, uh, our heading, and a whole host of other pieces of information. So in that little bit of sort of data stream, if you like, we can chuck a whole load of information in there. So basically, squawking is just the process of using the transponder on the aircraft to put in information that has been requested from ATC. Now, as you mentioned, there are some special codes. So these are internationally recognized or regionally recognized codes. So we'll start off with probably the most famous one, which is uh, 7700, uh, which is Mayday. So you said, why not just say it on the radio? Well, that's a fair point, but it assumes that your communication radios are working. Um, and it also may be a case that you might have someone with a knife to your throat who may take offence at you transmitting what is going on. So maybe uh, covertly you could put that code into the box, um, which takes us on to another code, uh, which is 7500, which is hijack. Oh, right. So uh, that could be put into the box, and air traffic controllers would therefore see that. Um, and they will by definition, not ask you details about what's going on because they will realise the situation. Uh, there is a code in between those, for those of you who are keeping up with this, which is 7600, which is that my radios have failed. So like I say, um, it's a secondary form of communication. It's not speech communication, it's data. So uh, 7600, yet yeah, the, the radios have failed. Uh, so that, those three are internationally recognised. There are one or two more. So 2000 is uh, basically I'm coming into your airspace and the previous controller has not allocated me a specific squawk. So it's just an identification saying we are approaching you. We have not been assigned a code. And, in the and United States. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, presumably somebody would then contact them and give them uh, a code yeah. if radio was working okay. Yeah, absolutely. So examples of where 2000 is used is where aircraft are coming across, say, for example, the Atlantic, where there is no radar coverage. So as they leave radar coverage in the United States or Canada, uh, they will stop using their previous uh, code, their squawk, and put 2000 up. And as they're then approaching uh, the uh, western part of Ireland, uh, the Irish air traffic controllers will see the aircraft they'll be able to see them on radar with their two air traffic controllers can see you and can see that you are uh, basically uh, flying uh, outside of controlled airspace in a VFR capacity, visual flight roles. Um, the Americans use uh, 1200-1200 for the same purpose. And dotted around the, the, the UK and the world will be 
sort of like localized um, squawks. So say, for example, uh, if you're flying around XYZ city, but not actually speaking to us, just put this code up and listen to us. Uh, we're not in a contract of uh, controller and pilot, but we know that you're listening to us. So if we need to speak to you, we, we can see that where you are and we'll give you a call. Those are things they call monitoring squawks. So yeah, it's just a, just a box that uh, uh, adds on some uh, facilities to us to identify ourselves with radar controllers. So you're only sort of required to to know like the the emergency ones essentially, I guess. Yes. I mean, yeah. 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 Uh, and the rest is essentially the code is essentially given you. They're just trying to sort of summarise really. So the, the code, yeah. So you're decided. So what, you're told how to identify yourself on on the system essentially. Yeah. So when you and I took off for our little flight. Uh, in the little aeroplane, we, we had the, the squawk of 7000, 7000. It's just a general one that's used in the UK saying, I'm flying around. And of course, the radar controllers can see that. Um, and they know that we're not actually talking to a particular air traffic controller. So right. it just, just gives visibility um, without actually specifically being in, under control of any particular radar controller. I mean, as always, very expertly explained. Thanks, Captain Al. It's a pleasure. Well, uh, welcome to our London studios. Uh, Welcome to the A320 Lounge uh, webinar uh, tech presentation, um, obviously for the 320 series. Welcome to the A320 and 737 Lounge, bringing technical refresher courses directly to you. Using our cutting-edge broadcasting facilities, enjoy a fully interactive technical refresher course from the comfort of your own home. All of our webinars are live and you can ask your instructor a question at any point during the day. All of our instructors are highly experienced and can help you. No more expensive nights away from home, no new software required, just an internet connection. Courses are run at regular intervals, so check out A320 Lounge and 737lounge.com for more details. Big thanks to you and Captain Al for that uh, awesome work as always, Matt. Yeah, the fascinating world of squawks this week. It's one of those interesting things that that I was always taught, one of the first things you're taught when you're setting up the transponder when you're flying GA aircraft, because some do have them in here uh, in the local area, and that is when you're dialing in the numbers, don't go past the relevant you're the, the important numbers like the seven seven zero seven six zero zeros and the seven because yeah. because when you're following the aircraft on flight radar 24 you sometimes get uh aircraft that are squawking that and nine times out of ten so i've been told it's where the pilots have kind of dialed the numbers in and inadvertently gone oh, I see. gone over the yeah. seven seven zero oh, zero like that so yeah oh but, well um, never mind okay. so we've got some commercial news to go through yeah. so if everyone's ready here we go. Let's go. Oh, just a quick one, guys. Uh, my screen is frozen. That's <laughs> a very, uh, very unfortunate time. Uh, that's okay. not very helpful. Is it? Don't, okay. don't, you, you can have my one, Nev. I'll do yours then. Yes, okay. There we go. <laughs> Well, that, was, uh, that went well. So uh, this first one is on breakingtravelnews.com, uh, the website. And uh, British Airways, Nev's favourite, are to trial digital queuing system at Heathrow. So BA has revealed it will be trialling a new queuing technology from Q1. 
Qmatic. Wow. Uh, the carrier hopes the system will enable customers to virtually check in, uh, at, uh, check in by pre-booking their time slot in advance of arriving at the airport. The technology that is optional for customers will be trialled by BA for three months on selected flights departing from Heathrow's Terminal 5. Customers will be sent an email before travelling, uh, inviting them to book their personal check-in time. Uh, when it's time for the customer to check in, the Qmatic system will notify them that it's their turn, allowing them to simply go to the dedicated desk. Customers who have not booked a check-in slot through Qmatic can proceed as normal or have the option to join a virtual queue when they arrive at the airport by scanning a QR code. BA will be the first airline to trial Qmatic, which is currently used by BP service stations. Hmm, that's interesting. And also the Tate Modern and the Post Office in the UK, among others, to help manage the flow of customers. Declan Pollard, BA's head of Heathrow Customer Experience, said, in this new COVID-19 area, we know that customers have been traveling less frequently than normal and in most cases not at all we understand many people will feel unfamiliar with airport journeys so we are committed to exploring how technology can simplify that experience for them this means technology that our customers can plan their departure knowing that they have personalized check-in times and he also said we think this technology coupled with digital travel apps will help efficiently manage the flow of customers in the airport at any one time and give our customers reassurance nev are we going to use this in September, maybe? Oh, I think we'll have to. I think there's an inevitability about this, isn't there? Because uh, there's been so much talk about all of this uh, business. And it's it feels to me as though it's not quite joined up properly yet. But uh, we'll certainly find out on uh, Monday of next week when the first passengers start to go out to Faro. Uh, in Portugal so mm. and Gibraltar uh, not running to Tel Aviv at the moment for obvious reasons but uh, yeah it'll be interesting to see uh, how all that goes um, so uh, yeah fast, fascinating Matt uh, you've got you're sticking we're sticking with the queue yeah, sticking with the themes yeah absolutely with the bbc.co.uk or .com if you're uh, across the pond shall we say uh, and the headline is Heathrow Airport could divert aircraft to ease crowding uh, so Heathrow Airport is considering contingency plans to divert aircraft to other UK airports or EU hubs if queues at the border become too long the airport has be has seen queues of up to 6 hours at the border over the last few months as the number of checks and paperwork for UK arrivals increased. Uh, the airport's chief operating officer has previously warned passengers could be held on planes to prevent crowding. Uh, this would uh, this would take measures a step further as a potential last resort. Uh, the airport wants to see more staff processing passengers at the border and for passenger locator forms that all passengers must now show on arrival to be automated so that passengers could use the e-gates. Um, the airport wants to... Uh, sorry, a Heathrow spokesperson said that uh, ahead of telling passengers to brace themselves for a long wait in immigration queues, Border Force could step up its efforts to automate checks for green list countries and put in place additional resources uh, for passengers where manual checks might be needed. Uh, accepting delays is a further demonstration of complacency from them on the matter. There are other protocols in place to hold passengers on planes or divert them to other airports to prevent excessive, unnecessary and completely avoidable queues in immigration halls. Um, I mean, the, the sort of story goes on there. But I mean, the only trouble is, is I mean, 
I guess it's not so bad if you get diverted to Gatwick, um, but what if you get diverted to somewhere like Southend or, or you know, sort of even Stansted? To be fair, because you're quite a way out of of London. I mean, I had that once in in the weather where I I, I was supposed to be arriving at um, at Stansted, but I ended up in Manchester and then had to find my way. My car, you know, my car is at the wrong airport. You know, it's uh, there. There are some issues w- with that, really. But uh, it's just. Uh, what do you think, Bob? about uh, queuing uh well uh, i'm afraid it's inevitable for the moment but I, mm-hmm. i'm sure people are working very hard to to make it as easy as possible i mean I, keeping people safe and that I, again yes it's, it's all about keeping people safe isn't it and I, I suppose the other problem is is you know we're in unprecedented times aren't we so you know systems to to, to to handle stuff like this are in the process of being developed and you know with with any agency these things take time don't they Nev, you've got a follow-up from a Pratt & Whitney story we had a few weeks back. Yes, indeed. This is on the kfgo.com website uh, via Reuters. And it says that the head of the FAA said on Wednesday that the agency is going to mandate strengthening a key part on Boeing 777 planes with Pratt & Whitney engines like the one involved in an emergency landing in February. Uh, FAA Administrator Steve Dixon told a US House committee that the agency is requiring the manufacturers to address strengthening the cowling. He also said that the agency was working with Boeing and Pratt & Whitney to ensure that the structure around the engine, the cowling and the inlet area does not damage the aircraft structure. United Airlines 777 uh, Pratt & Whitney 4000 engine uh, failed shortly after takeoff from Denver on February the 20th, showering debris over nearby cities, but no one was injured and the plane safely returned to the airport. The FAA in February ordered immediate inspections of 777 planes with these engines before further flights after the NTSB found a cracked fan blade on the United engine was consistent with metal fatigue. Boeing said on Wednesday that it continues to work with the FAA on potential design improvements for the inlet and fan cowlings. Uh, This work is exacting and time-consuming and we are giving the technical teams the time they need to ensure their designs address learnings, uh, provide the expected performance and maintain overall safety. Uh, United is the only uh, only US operator of 777s with the Pratt & Whitney uh, 4000 engines and has a total of 52 of these aircraft and is working to resume flights. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? This is obviously an engine that's been in service for for quite a long time and uh, only now, uh, because of this, they're having to address some some quite serious uh, concerns about Mm. it. But that's what uh, safety is all about, isn't it? Uh, Lessons being learned and improvements all the time Indeed. obviously you followed this one bob you saw the uh, incident yes yeah it is interesting i, I haven't read the report or seen it but I, I wonder what the initiator of the fatigue was because of course there's going to be a two-pronged attack one stop it getting worse in other words the, the guards and the cowling or whatever they're talking about but also what 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 can you prevent causing it in the first place so if it's fod or something like that you may have to address those sort of things it, I mean, again, I appreciate you can't sort of comment on on things specifically, but I, I mean, part of me sort of feels like this was quite a rare incident. Hmm. Yeah. So we do have a, a sort of saying in the in the branch that uh, a single accident doesn't make for good recommendations. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, <laughs> it, it can. You you can sort of. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It sort of spoils a situation, if you like, if. 
you take action on something with where it is just a one-off. Yeah. Um, and, and that must be a difficult call, really, I suppose. I mean, unless it's something that's really obvious that where you think, yeah, that that is clearly as a result of, you know, something. I mean, as you say, you're, you're, I, I guess you're almost having to let, like, a one-off sort of slide and just monitor the situation, I guess. That's right. But, of course, that would have been... The, the, the action taken, the recommendation made, would have been uh, the result of hours of discussion at all levels within the NTSB and, of course, the same with the ARB. Yeah. Um, any recommendation is really discussed in depth before it, it makes the press or makes the, the, the print, if you like, to make sure it's viable, sensible, will work and can be carried out. Wow. So the next story uh, is coming to us from the aviationherald.com, uh, Simon's awesome site, which many of us use here on the show. And uh, it'd be interesting to hear Bob's thoughts on this one. But uh, this one, the Key Lime accident, which happened earlier this week, which I think definitely left many of us with uh, open jaws, I think. Yeah. But a Key Lime Air Swearingen SA-226 TC Metro 2 uh, registration November 280 Kilo Lima, performing flight KG 970 from Salida County to Denver, Continental with uh, one crew was on a visual approach to Centennial's runway 17 left. I was cleared for the approach and was descending through 6,400 feet, about three nautical miles north of the threshold of runway 17 left, uh, around 11:24 local time. Uh, a private Cirrus SR22 registration November 416 Delta Juliet with two people on board was cleared for a visual approach to runway 17 right and was advised of the traffic landing on the parallel runway and the Cirrus descended through uh, 6,400 feet about three nautical miles left of the runway of threshold or rather threshold of runway 17 right but overshot uh, the centre lines of both runways 17 right and 17 left the two aircraft collided the Cirrus apparently struck across through the fuselage of the metro liner just above the wings uh, taking out the whole top section of the cabin at that point the metro cl- uh, crew declared an emergency on tap frequency reporting their right-hand engine had also failed and reported they saw another aircraft uh, on parachute going down. After landing, the crew advised it had been definitely uh, in a mid-air collision. Uh, The Cirrus pilot activated the uh, parachute or the cap system and landed in a field nearby with no injuries. The crew of the Metroliner managed to land the aircraft at Centennial Airport. And the Cirrus, with two people on board, ended up around 2.7 nautical miles north of the runway 17 left in the area of the Cherry Creek Reservoir. The local sheriff's office gave the location of the Cirrus between uh, East Bellevue Avenue and South Cherry Creek Drive. The sheriff's office stated the other aircraft was carrying cargo only and was flown by a single pilot. Uh, Again, there were no injuries. Obviously, the NTSB... Uh, obviously opened up their investigation and are dis- uh, dispatched uh, investigators to the site. So that happened earlier this week. And I'm sure we all saw the pictures. And there's also a video as well, which someone posted on Twitter, I know, of the uh, the Cirrus uh, uh, coming down with the parachute above. But uh, what were your thoughts on this, uh, Bob, when this, this news broke this week? Well, first of all, astonishing that uh, nobody was killed. Incredible. And that's great. Yeah. So the, the NTSB have got three people to talk to, uh, but they've got so much to work with on what went right, not just what went wrong. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, the, the, I don't know the, the full facts, but the, the single pilot in the larger aircraft, um, that's an astonishing piece of airmanship to, to hold it together, as it were, literally, um, and land safely. I mean, that must have been a real challenge for, you know, as you say, because the, 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 the body has been compromised. I mean, how on earth you're able to keep control of something like that? Like, you know, while I mean, it's just, it's just astounding, isn't it? It's a real testament to their, to the pilot's skill, I think. Yes. Yeah, indeed. Actually, in the chat room, um, Captain Cruz points out the Metro liner is of a 1978 uh, vintage. <laughs> Wow. So it's uh, so yeah. Again, it is. Um, it, it did take a hell of a beating and, and carried on, uh, carried on going. I think that's a testament to these older aircraft. I think <laughs> yeah. sometimes we can say that they're they're built of built to um, last. Yes, of slightly it's, thicker. Yeah, yeah. built to last. That's what that's what we'll say on that one. Yeah, built to last. <laughs> Oh, but, dear. Uh, no, so moving on to the next story. And uh, Nev, you've got uh, something involving Concord. Yes, just before I do that, uh, Micah in the chat room, our colleague from the uh, US East Coast, says, uh, can we have Bob on every week so that he can, <laughs> in that way, we can get his opinions on all of these stories <laughs> yes. as they come up? Absolutely. I'm yes. sure that yes. his fee would be... Yes, yes. We'll, we'll, we'll be arranging a contract. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, arrange, yeah. we'll arrange a contract yeah. after the show. Yes, right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right, Poor very Bob. good. Yes, well, this is on the uh, pointsguide.co.uk, and it says that the Concord Room is the most exclusive British Airways lounge inside Terminal Five at Heathrow Airport. The lounge is known for its first-class dining, amenities, and premium experience. And now, BA has added a bit of aviation history to the lounge's decor. Uh, the actual nose from one of its fabled Concorde jets. Uh, the airline has moved just the nose of Concorde, which is more than 13 feet in length, from its waterside headquarters to its new home in the terrace area of the Concorde Room Lounge. Workers carefully packed up the distinctive piece of aviation memorabilia during an evening shift, strapped it securely to a rolling pallet and transferred it to the lounge. It's now on display for av geeks with access to the lounge to enjoy an up-close look. The slanted nose was one of the unique design aspects of Concorde, uh, which obviously was the supersonic passenger jet uh, from 1969 that could make the flight from London to New York in less than three hours, half the time of a typical transatlantic flight. Uh, the Concorde obviously last flew in 2003, so seeing part of the aircraft at the BA Concorde room is the closest many of us will get to that jet. Um, and of course, I don't have enough points uh, to get into the Concorde. Yeah, that's, no, that's I actually I one of the. Ask that question. This is <laughs> one of the questions I asked Nev the other day, and I said, obviously, Nev with his diamond encrusted uh, right. BA card. <laughs> yes. I thought Nev would have access literally to the. Well, to the entire. No, the, the, yeah, the gold but... card does not allow you into the Concorde room unless you've got a certain number of points, and I am. Ooh way off that I'm afraid oh dear. so we'll, we'll just have to point at it from the outside and right, stuff like and that. go isn't that pretty <laughs> actually actually Bob when you when you're uh, obviously because you have to I suppose you have to fly sometimes to get to to certain investigations do do you get put into uh, you know first class and business class uh, it, it depends <laughs> what we're doing if it, if we need to be hitting the ground running then then we will go in a, a mode of transport that will get us there so we can hit the ground running Right. Okay. But I a... must remind you, I'm a uh, a civil servant. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
so so it's a nineteen fifty-three Cessna one. Yeah, quite. Yeah, all, absolutely. All <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Public transport all the way. <laughs> oh dear. Right. Uh, on to the next story. Oh. This is on the traveller dot com dot au, and the headline is maskless JetBlue airline passenger who blew nose into blanket cops a thirteen thousand five hundred and seventy-four dollar. Fine. So the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration announced this week that it had proposed a civil penalty of uh, ten thousand five hundred U.S. dollars against a jet blue passenger whose disruptive behavior on a flight included coughing and blowing his nose into a blanket. The FAA alleges uh, that um, the passenger repeatedly ignored and was abusive to flight attendants who instructed him to wear a face mask. The agency said in a news release, the passenger's disruptive behavior diverted the flight uh, crew members from their duties. It was just the late. It was sorry. It was just the latest announcement from the FAA, which has been cracking down on passengers who refuse to wear face masks and other and, and otherwise disrupt crew members. U.S. airline. Airlines has reported around 1,300 cases of unruly passengers to the FAA since February, a huge spike compared to earlier in uh, to, to earlier years. The agency said that uh, it recently it had identified potential violations in about 260 cases and had notified passengers of enforcement in around 20 cases. A number of additional enforcement actions were uh, in the works. The FAA said in March, the agency extended a zero tolerance policy for unruly passengers and was first announced back in January. The uh, the Transport Security Administration last month extended its mask orders for people in airports and on airplanes, trains and buses throughout September. I mean, I'm sure there are incidences of this nature here in the UK, but I, 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 can't, I, I just don't understand why people have to be so difficult. That's when an it expensive comes to stuff. nose blow. It is a very expensive. I, 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 I'm, I'm intrigued as to how they came up with the figure of thirteen thousand. Uh, well, it was ten thousand five hundred US dollars, um, but it, because it's from a an mm. Australian website, it, it, it's it a lot of money for to, blowing your nose. Though I it mean, is. I mean, but then we've said this time and time again. You need to listen to your cabin crew, and if they ask you to do something, you need to do as you're told. You know, I, I don't what, think being asked to wear it. No, another one of these <laughs> comical stories from. Uh, it is, it is. Um, I mean, it's social decency and common decency. It's maybe just a sort of yeah. figure that was chosen to teach an individual a lesson. Definitely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, standards. I mean, you, you, wouldn't standards. Get, you wouldn't get it on a BA flight, that's for sure, hey, Nev? <laughs> I, can't, I can't even find the words to describe <laughs> how awful that would, that would be. True, true. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, um, yes. Yeah, so that's it for the commercial this week. Um, don't panic. We're we're going to. Um, we've still got some military that we're going to do. So we have, uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, let's let's. Um, he says he's he's trying to find the right thing. Let let let's do that now, shall we? Let's go. For this first.
first military story, the U.S. Air Force has awarded one of its pilots for skillfully landing a damaged aircraft without a cockpit canopy or working landing gear after what the service is calling a catastrophic failure. Captain Taylor Bai, a 75th Fighter Squadron pilot, pulled off an emergency belly landing in her A-10 Thunderbolt II attack aircraft in April 2020 after an unexplained gun malfunction over the Grand Bay Range at Moody Air Force Base in Georgia that uh, sent panels and her cockpit, pan uh, cockpit canopy flying and prevented her landing gear from deploying. The 23rd Wing at Moody Air Force Base announced on Friday that Bai had received the Air Combat Command's Airmanship Award uh, because she, quote, managed to skillfully and safely land her A-10 with minimal damage, uh, despite the challenges she faced in the air. So Bai recalled in an Air Force statement that when things started going wrong, uh, she pulled away from the ground, she checked her engines, which were both working, then she slowed the aircraft down to allow her wingman, Major Jack Ingber, to inspect the damaged aircraft. Now, Major Ingbert said that the, uh, oh, in a statement that it was his uh, job to think of everything that Bai had not because she has, uh, as he said, a massive handful of airplane that is literally falling apart. So after determining uh, what was wrong, Bai had to figure out how to land the airplane. She lowered her seat uh, to shield herself from the wind, which was uh, somewhere around 350 miles per hour. And of course that made it difficult to see the runway. She was thinking, where's the ground? Where's the ground? Uh, she said she was also holding her breath at that point. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Joka, the 75th Fighter Squadron commander, uh, said in a follow-on statement, what's most important is preventing the total loss of the A-10 or even worse, her life. And that's exactly what uh, Captain By managed to do. Uh, through uh, those such occurrences do happen, they are pretty rare, but this is just another testament as to uh, the quality of the training for these aircraft, uh, uh, the, well, the, the aircraft themselves and then the uh, fighter pilots that fly them. I mean, it's, uh, again, it's uh, like we were saying earlier, isn't it? It's a testament to the incredible skills of the pilot um, that, mm. that this, you know, wasn't, wasn't a, a worse incident, shall we say. Yeah, landing without a, or not having a canopy. I mean, you know, most people have flown like, or, or, or say, Armando's flown in a Boeing Stearman, which is obviously has no uh, canopy as Windy, such. I think, with the, the wind in your hair. <laughs> but but that aircraft is travelling at sort of ninety to hundred knots thereabouts. Yeah. You know, this is something obviously a lot lot faster. But yeah, indeed. Yeah. So Armando's got uh, another story, and uh, this one is all about uh, Germany replacing their P three Orions. In this next story, Germany is set to replace its P-3 Orion Maritime Patrol aircraft with the Boeing P-8 Poseidon. The selection of the P-8 Poseidon emerged during a parliamentary session after the United States approved a possible foreign military sales deal of up to five aircraft to Germany. The Bundesministerium der Verteidigung, uh, the German Federal Ministry of Defense, is looking for uh, to, the Bo to the Boeing P-8 Poseidon as a temporary replacement for its aging fleet of Lockheed P-3 Orion uh, maritime patrol aircraft. That's according to Parliamentary uh, State Secretary uh, Thomas Silberhorn. Well, Silberhorn was quoted in the German newspaper, uh, Behorden Spiegel, uh, and he answered questions 
to uh, members from the Bundestag on behalf of the federal minister of defense about uh, proposals from Boeing in the U.S. and uh, and from France. So answering specifically to Boeing's proposal, which would make Germany the third operator of the P-8 on the European continent, uh, the Poseidon was described as an equal replacement for the Orion. Uh, the uh, quote from the Bundestag said, the uh, capabilities of Boeing's P-8 Poseidon weapon system basically correspond to those of the P-3 Orion. Uh, only the P-8 Poseidon weapon system could ensure a seamless and timely capability transition if a foreign military sales contract were concluded before the summer break in 2021. So the possibility of operation for an interim period uh, in the overall system of the Bundeswehr using the existing infrastructure uh, of the base at Nordholz would be given. That's a loose translation. Uh, so the U.S. Department of State has already approved this possible foreign military sales uh, deal of the five P-8s uh, to Germany. They did that in March of 2021 for an estimated total cost of 1.77 billion U.S. dollars. The selection of the P-8 Poseidon is not an isolated or a surprise acquisition for Germany. Uh, last year, the German Air Force decided to replace part of its uh, tornado fleet with around 30 F-A-18 Super Hornets and 15 EA-18 Growlers to replace that nuclear capability of the Tornado uh, IDS and the electronic warfare capability of the Tornado ECR, uh, respectively. The choice was due to the faster integration of the B-61 nuclear bomb on the American-made aircraft, which forced a change in the initial plan to replace the entire Tornado fleet with the Eurofighter Typhoon. So additionally, this is a story we're still working on, uh, India has been approved to buy six more P-8 maritime patrol aircraft for the cost of 2.42 billion US dollars. That's a story we'll follow up on and have more information in the future. Um, so it's not all doom and gloom for Boeing. They're still doing great with their military sales. There we go. Thanks for that, uh, Armando. I'm just saying uh, to the guys, we're very lucky to talk to the uh, P8 Poseidon crew a few years back at Riyadh, but they wouldn't let me on board with cameras, no. which was uh, a bit uh, upsetting. But I think there they've we met go. you before, that's why. They had yeah. done, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this next one from Armando is uh, all about another aircraft that I saw four, four years ago, I think, at the Dubai Air Show. And uh, this is all about uh, the air tractor. Oh, the air tractor, wow. Mm. Uh, we've talked quite a bit about the light attack aircraft program over the last couple of years, but the uh, manufacturer air tractor has teamed with L3 Harris Technologies on the AT-802 Skywarden. That's a new variant of its light attack aircraft. Now, for a decade, air tractor has marketed the AT-802, but the Skywarden nomenclature reflects L3 Harris's contribution to the project. Uh, the combined offering comes ahead of a U.S. Special Operations Command planned uh, armed overwatch program, which is supposed to host aircraft demonstrations in 2021, and that's to find a new light attack aircraft. Uh, the command is interesting in buying up to 75 total aircraft to replace the U-28A Draco, which is an intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance turboprop based on the Pilatus PC-12 platform. So L3 Harris said it has designed the Skywarden using a team of former special operations aviators, uh, however, the company declines to say uh, if it would participate in the actual uh, armed overwatch program for, for SOCOM. So in a statement, they said that the Skywarden is a modular open system designed to enable any customer to be successful in supporting 
and supporting and countering violent extremist organizations anywhere in the world. And that's from L3 Harris himself. Now, the AT-802, or, or the air tractor, is known for as a crop duster, as AT-502. The Skywarden is based on a firefighting version of that aircraft. Um, this new aircraft will feature L3 Harris's communications and ISR equipment. Uh, those products include electro-optical and infrared ball turrets or police cameras, emission management software, multi-channel radios, tactical radios, a bomb release system, and a tactical airborne navigation system. Now, the two companies claim that the AT-802 Skywarden uh, features the, quote, largest payload capacity of any single-engine turboprop aircraft. Uh, this aircraft has a 6,000-pound uh, flexible combat loadout and a six-hour loader capability at around a 200 nautical mile combat radius. Now, it's also capable of taking off and landing on rough airstrips. The AT-802 Skywarden would actually come with eight wing hardpoints uh, and carry up to 500-pound uh, uh, class bombs to center centerline hardpoints to carry additional bombs and an innermost wing station optimized for guns ranging from a 50 caliber up to a 20 millimeter. A picture distributed by the companies shows the aircraft actually carrying 2.75 inch rocket, uh, rockets in pods under its hardpoints. Now, there was a previous attempt by the air tractor uh, to sell a light attack aircraft to the US government and that failed. The company pitched the AT-802 for the US Air Force's uh, light attack aircraft program, but it was reportedly rejected due to uh, the lack of having an ejection seat. Um, now, in the show a couple years ago now, I think we talked about uh, similar aircraft uh, from a company called IOMAX, which uh, was designed to basically fit in a shipping container, be able to ship, uh, be shipped on a, on a C-17 and put anywhere in the world with essentially a minimal uh, manpower footprint, minimal maintenance, and uh, and be able to conduct uh, missions in austere environments. So uh, two big giants in the aerospace industry, and we'll see how these two companies come together to make this work. I think uh, Tony S. summed it up in the chat room. Um, it looks like something from the 1950s. <laughs> so, so this is a so they're like a like a, a crop dusting version. Is that is that what they're more familiar? People are more yeah. familiar with in the states and things. They're more familiar with these being crop dusters. If you if you Google these, that you know that they look identical to this military version as here, just with less bombs and machine guns and stuff underneath the wings and stuff. But they're an awesome bit of kit. I've been up close and personal with one of these at uh, Dubai a few years back, and um, they are really menacing to see yeah, uh, close up. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to annoy the no, pilot. The in pilot one of these. No, absolutely. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, it's the array of of weird stuff well, that yes. you can attach to it that is just sort of boggling. Really, yeah. it's just bizarre. But uh, on our last video from Armando this week, uh, he chats to us uh, quickly about uh, a broad, brief description about the EAA adventure. Guys, as I sit here on the grounds of EAA Air, Air Venture in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, the United States Air Force Special Operations Command is supposed to bring a wide spectrum of its aircraft designed for unique missions as part of its presence here at EAA Air Venture in Oshkosh from July 26th to August 1st of this year. Uh, in a, a statement from the EAA, they said, we've solidified the roster of aircraft from, AF aircraft from AFSOC this year, and the variety is truly impressive. That's according to Rick Larson, EAA's Vice President of uh, communities and member programming. He actually coordinates AirVenture's features and attractions. 
He goes on to say that each one of these aircraft has a, a distinctive mission and a role within AFSOC. All of those stories will be told at AirVenture 2021. Now, AFSOC, as we know, is comprised of highly trained, highly deployable airmen who conduct special operations worldwide. Uh, airmen in these career fields uh, have unique skills such as parachuting, scuba diving, repelling, motorcycling, survival skills, and much, much more. Uh, aircraft in the command include uh, specialized mobility aircraft such as the MC-130s, the CV-22, C-146, strike aircraft like the AC-130 gunship, and of course, ISR aircraft like the U-28, which we just talked about. Now, aircraft are scheduled to arrive here at Oshkosh on Thursday, July 28th and remain through Sunday, August 1st. Um, now, there may be more than one or more of these models. Uh, the aircraft roster includes the AC-130J Ghost Rider, the MC-130 Commando Solo, uh, EC-130, the CV-22 Osprey, U-28A Dracos, and C-146. Um, so that's just a short list of the aircraft that will be here at EAA's AirVenture this year. And we're all hoping to be here. I mean, it's so exciting. I mean, it's the 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 the, the dangling of the carrot of of you know uh, air shows again is just oh, <laughs> hurrah! Yeah, I think EAA and I mean every every blooming air show in the US, we all want to go out to. Yeah. You know, Oshkosh. We'd all, we'd all love to go to Oshkosh as well, but. Yeah. Um, you know, we're going to have to plan these over the next sort of... <laughs> yeah, I dare say, I dare say in this one, you know, because I think Armando is planning to go, isn't he? So I think, uh, I dare say we'll be yeah. well represented. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, we're going to move on with uh, the last part of the show before we start to wrap up. And it is, of course, our Caption This kind of just-for-fun competition that we have on our Facebook page. Uh, so for those of you who do follow us on Facebook, and if you don't, if you're listening to the audio show and you may not follow us on Facebook, uh, look us up, but we are, we are on there. And each week we run a Caption This comp or kind of competition where I put a picture of an interesting aircraft up, which some of you may not have seen before, and ask you to leave your wittiest and funniest caption. So this week... Uh, the picture, which Matt will pop up on the screen in just a moment, See, I, is... I think somebody's been playing with Photoshop on this one because <laughs> the aerodynamics of this beast are, are not plausible. There we go. What a treat for everyone. <laughs> so, Nev, what, Nev, what would you, what would you kind of say this aircraft? Describe is? the picture for our audio listeners, please, Nev. <laughs> oh well, well, it's it's an A380, uh, but it's uh, rather than the, the, just the two decks, it's got two, three, four, five, six decks on it. So, uh, <laughs> yes, uh, very high. Uh, capacity aircraft and <laughs> right. uh, six engines as well yes i thought that was so, a nice attention to detail with whoever it was that was making yes. it they thought they you know, thought that <laughs> looks like a heavy aircraft let's throw in an extra engine or two yeah, yeah. What, what do you what do you think of that bob would you think this would uh prove it, a... it looks more like a cruise line, like a cruise line <laughs> the air, it? it's a swimming pool yes. right yes and, uh... absolutely yeah you could have lots of showers <laughs> and things on yes, that particular one right. it's very yeah. bizarre yeah, yeah so we had uh we had some amusing comments in so we're going to go me and never going to run through these quickly and matt if you want to drop one in as well you can if you've got time with the pressing the buttons yeah, yeah you're right but uh, first one comes from simon the qatar a320 or qatar a3 or a380 bar taken to new extremes That's, never mind a bar it looks more like a nightclub i think yeah. <laughs> nev yeah uh, chris says the a380-19 seats the same number of passengers as the original whilst meeting new social distancing <laughs> guidance 
I like that one. I like that yeah, one. I do. That was quite clever. I like Jacob's where it says it's the, the, the new A380, A3, zero, zero, zero. <laughs> uh, quite like that. It's, yeah, the, yeah, the A380,000, I think, is what that says on there. <laughs> Next one comes from Neil. He's taking us back to the 80s with this one. Uh, feel safe on our new Airbus Carol Decker as you fly to china in our hands oh i see what they did oh, there yeah, they it's did very there. good yes yeah. yeah i see what they very did there tested. yes good nev you've got one uh, from sean yeah sean says that the ryanair a380 arriving for the new paint scheme <laughs> yeah yeah that sounds about right and uh, john says uh, no madam you can't book a balcony seat <laughs> <laughs> like it uh, Gary uh, says, and this is, this is lost on me because I haven't watched any of the films. What? Uh, Gary says, Harry Potter upgraded the bus. I should explain. It's a purple, but for those who haven't, uh, dinosaurs, that I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a double-decker dust, but it's actually a triple-decker purple bus that's in one of the films. That thing. Nev, what's from Malcolm? Uh, Malcolm says that you'll find the pool and saunas on the top level. Uh, quite right. I think that's where we'll 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 find ourselves. I think is is on the top level. Uh, it's uh, Nick says uh, you'd never get me on the top deck. I'm frightened of heights. Good point. <laughs> like that one, Nick. So uh, Steve, this is a great one from Steve. Steve said Airbus scrapped its new A380 as it takes ten hours for people to board it for a seven-hour <laughs> seven flight. flight. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Darry says uh, good old times when bigger and more engines meant better product and i think there's a little bit to be said for that in some <laughs> quite some yeah. situations yeah uh, some guy called neville uh said that? uh uh how are we going to get this into gibraltar um that, that'd <laughs> more be accurately, quite how are we going to get it out yeah yeah get it in not <laughs> so, yeah it's the same with norwich isn't it yes uh, <laughs> Uh, Laura says, uh, when the cabin service takes longer than the duration of the flight. Quite, yes. <laughs> mm. Indeed. Uh, and finally, Michelle uh, says, uh, the first flight for Faro takes off from Heathrow on the 17th of May. <laughs> yes, it's like, like I think yeah, Portugal's going to be very busy by the sound of it, I think, uh, as of Monday. If one yeah. of those flew in, it would be. Well, can yes, you, that's you, true. Can you imagine, can you imagine the... the, the a systems that would have to be put in place at Heathrow to board that aircraft. Right. Mm. Okay. I mean, that'd be quite a stand, wouldn't it? I mean, you know, stand it's, yeah, need its own terminal, I think. Yeah. <sighs> uh, anyway, so thanks everyone for sending in your comments on that. Fantastic as always this week. There'll be another one next week uh, posted round about Wednesday. So keep your eyes on the social medias. So week ahead, what's going on next week? Keep your eyes uh, on the show for next Friday, because on next Friday's show, our guest is going to be Mike Ling, MBE, who is Blade 3 from the Blades Aerobatic Display Team. He'll be coming on the show next week, and uh, just for your information uh, about Mike quickly, he is renowned as the Red Arrow's longest serving pilot, so he'll be on next week's show on Friday, so keep your eyes on there so nev social media links where can people find us on social media yes all you've got to do is look up at uh, looks up on facebook twitter or instagram S- uh, search for plain talking uk our whatsapp number is plus 44 757 2249166 that's plus 44 757 2249166 uh, you can email the show directly which is podcast at plain talking uk.com or our website 
website, which is www.plaintalkinguk.com. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channels. You'll get notifications when we go live and you can help shape the conversation of the show by joining us in the chat room. Just go to uh, youtube.com and search for Plain Talking UK. And you can also uh, find us, uh, if you go to our website, you can use an Amazon link as well. And that pays us uh, a couple of quid uh, for your trouble when you do your Amazon shopping. And you can become a Patreon as well. So there we go, our social media links. Don't forget, we'd love to hear your feedback, guys and girls. So feel free to send us your feedback into our email address. Just like Nick did at the top of the show. Just like Nick did, yeah. So that's it. So we're going to bring episode 367 of the show to a close. Big thanks to all our YouTube viewers this evening and also our audio downloaders of the show. And a big thanks as well this week to our awesome guest, Bob. Thank you very much, Bob, for taking the entire Friday evening out of your time to join us on the show we really do appreciate it so uh from all of the team here thank you very much indeed for your time bob thank you so from me carlos here in my home studio from matt in the ptuk studios from nev in his glorious buckinghamshire stately sweet studios (laughs) and of course from bob in his home studios take care everyone have a great weekend and we'll see you next friday stay safe everyone Bye. bye